November 15th, 1999, I walked out of prison with a GED and a goal. Prison Parole Office Youth Center. I started talking to little black kids who looked just like me not long ago, telling them, you're going to jail not because you're black. You're going to jail not because you smoke weed or carry a gun. Somebody let you down, they haven't been there for you, and it hurts. And you act out. Welcome to a special episode of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Today, we'll be looking back at some of our most impactful and insightful conversations this year. At 8 and 9, it was cute. At 14 and 15, it's criminal. Let me show you how to heal yourself internally and deal with your trauma. Then you can live a great life. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we look back at some of our most thought-provoking episodes from our numerous guests so far this season. This episode features an incredible lineup of fan favorites, including best-selling authors, world-renowned speakers, high-profile attorneys, and even an Emmy Award-winning director. You need to disrupt yourself, and you need to be willing to go back to the learning phase and to become a student again. And maybe that means, you know, learning about new emerging things. Oh, well, like, what's, you know, what are the legal issues uh, with regard to cryptocurrency or, you know, like whatever, whatever the thing is. But it's useful to start asking those questions and to not stagnate and assume that you can coast forever on your successes. We have to keep learning and growing. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney podcast. kick things off, we're revisiting a first for the podcast where I, the host, became the guest. Crisp's director of coaching strategy and my wife, Jessica Mogul, put me in the hot seat and asked me several hard-hitting questions to reveal why I, too, am a constant work in progress. I think it was at one of the GCS2, and I looked at you and I said, is this fun for you? (laughs) What was your answer? (laughs) Yeah. So at at the summits, at that point, yeah, I, I love it. But I will say that I have a, a recurring nightmare, at least every other night, on the way to these conferences for probably like the three, four, five, six months in advance. And it is that no one has showed up, the room is empty. And then when I, they tell me, hey, Mike, you got to go on stage. And I forgot to prepare. I'm like, God. what? I'm sure. I like, feel nervous with you saying yeah. this. Uh, so I'm sure some people listening have had this nightmare where it's like you're back in school or something yeah. and you forgot that there was a class that you had that you never attended or something. And now it's coming time for like your grades. But I do feel that constantly. And it's, yeah, what is Andy Grove, CEO of Intel? He once said he's got a great book by the title, like Only the Paranoid Survive. I constantly feel that. And people will be like, hey, what's wrong? Why can't you relax? All this stuff. I think if it paralyzes you, if it puts you in a position where you're not able to actually do things, then it's probably not healthy. But if it creates this sense of positive urgency where it creates this dynamic where you want to do a really great job. Like when we go into these conferences, I understand that people have expectations. They, they want to make sure they get a lot of value from this. Everything from the content to their experience. I have a tremendous 
amount of respect for anybody who gets on an airplane, books a hotel room and decides to spend two days with us in Atlanta. So I want to make sure that that's well worth their time. And as we prepare for these things, all the little details, I really, really, really feel like a sense of responsibility to execute well on that. So that's where that anxiety for me comes from. And as those expectations continue to grow year over year over year, I think it becomes much more challenging. But at the same time, like we were saying at this most recent conference this past November, the pressure is a privilege to have this opportunity to create this type of experience, to do the type of work that we do. Yes, it comes with stress and yes, it comes with problem solving, but not everyone gets to experience that and, and be able to like be in a position where you have this platform to be able to help and impact people. And going back to even having problems and problem solving all the time. How do you make decisions? All right, you're going inside the sick and twisted mind. So <laughs> I do have a framework around how I make decisions. In our coaching workshops, we work through this tool that kind of does this in depth and in detail. So I start by kind of assessing, do I have enough information? And, and to me, that usually means I usually have about like 70% of the information because sometimes the time that it takes to get the other 20% like that delay that really slows decision making. Sometimes you lose opportunities that way. Also, it doesn't really give you any more clarity oftentimes. So if you can usually get about 70, 80% of the information you need, you need around something, you're good. I also assess around how am I feeling? Like if I didn't sleep well the night before, like, and I've got a big decision to make that can impact a lot of people, I will postpone that meeting and say, hey, let me get a good night's rest. And then I can be, you know, in a better headspace the following day. I also consider like the second and third order consequences of a decision. It's not just just like, well, let me make this decision. And it's like, yes, no, or whatever it is, green light, red light. I look at it and say, okay, well, what happens after that? Let's expand out that decision. Okay, here are all the people that it impacts. Here's kind of the upside of making the right decision. Here's the downside of making the wrong decision. And also in the standpoint of like, after this decision is made, what could be the implications of that like going forward? And sometimes around the decision, I think, okay, well, if we were to blow that decision up in, from the standpoint of like scaling it, and then I think, okay, well, let's scale that to a thousand clients. Does it still work? Does it still hold up? Does it still make sense? Does it also make sense based on where we believe things are going in terms of the future and like what the needs are of our clients and where we see the industry going? Will it make sense three years from now? Will it make sense five years from now? And if it's the type of decision that only makes sense right now or only makes sense this year, I'll generally say no, that doesn't make sense to me. But after doing this, I think all of us and people listening are, you make so many decisions throughout a day. I think, you know, the numbers like in the hundreds, if not in the thousands, but there's very, very few key decisions that you'll make throughout a year that are transformative. What Jeff Bezos calls them like one-way door versus two-way door. Two-way door, you can go back and kind of like change it, but like one-way door, like really give these decisions some thought, but not too much thought because here's the thing, it is important. Uh, I'm not wearing it today, but the shirt, like indecisiveness is weakness. Decision-making, to me, I view it, speed is really, really important because it's less about trying to be perfect. I think people who try to be perfect are like the ultimate procrastinators. That I think they use this as a shield. They're saying, oh, it's not perfect yet, so I'm going to hide right. behind my work and because it's not ready, it's not ready. I think of the exact opposite. If you can make decisions with speed, you can be wrong a lot and then eventually right. I'll give an example of this. We work with firm owners and they say, oh, I need to hire a practice manager, for example. And then they'll think about it and they're like, oh, the expense of this person, the salary? What am I going to do? Where am I going to find this person? I'm going to put this off. And they'll spend a month agonizing about this decision. And then you have other firms that are like, we need to hire a practice manager, three paralegals, two attorneys. And then they'll hire those people. Those people will not work out. They'll hire new ones. Those people will not work out. Then they'll hire new ones and they'll still get there faster than the person yeah. agonizing over the decision for a year or six months or whatever. So, and it's the same thing with marketing. You can throw things up and then you can get data back. And then you can say, how are we going to iterate? How are we going to adjust? Let's get feedback from people rather 
than trying to like put the perfect campaign together only to then finally launch it after a year and then it fail. So to me, the speed is, is very, very important with decision making. Yeah, yeah. And then once you get to the actual decision, there's the whole actual let's get shit done and the execution. And how do you go about executing? And also you say this constantly, but it's so important about who you surround yourself with. And how do those people play a factor in execution? As you were asking this question, I thought I was going to go in one direction with this. And then as you finished <laughs> that, I think I'm deciding to go in a different direction. There are human beings on this earth. They exist in the room and they breathe oxygen. The mouth breathers. They'll, yeah, they'll, they'll <laughs> eat your food, they'll drink your water, but they don't add any material value. They don't get anything done. They're the ones that have these grandiose ideas that have this ambition or this would be nice or whatever, but they don't actually get things done. And I have found that if you surround yourself with these bullshit artists, you will have a lifetime of frustration because nothing will get off the ground. Alternatively, if you surround yourself with people that like to just get things done, the discussions become we almost sit down and we're like, yes, we spend some time obviously getting clarity around what we're trying to do, making sure that it all makes sense. And then like, who's responsible for what? But it's a lot of conversations around accountability of what is the deadline? Who's accountable for it? Do you have the information that you need? Are you clear on what we're trying to do? And those meetings become much more productive. And then we have, you know, review meetings constantly. We're like, what's the status of this project? You have like the ultimate project management going on with everything it is that you're doing. And if you're the person, which I think a lot of entrepreneurs are, where you're the visionary, you have a lot of ideas, you like the new things. If you don't have the type of people around you that can make those ideas real and actually move them forward and then make sure that they recur, you're just going to be frustrated because you're going to have a hundred open loops, maybe a thousand open loops. And you know, then you're just going to get defeated and say, well, nothing can get done. Nothing gets off the ground. So I've had to realign myself in the sense that I have to be very clear about what it is that I want and what it is that we're trying to do and how we prioritize those things. And then sometimes you can't do it right away. You either don't have the person to be able to like move an idea forward, or sometimes your people at max capacity, you need to expand capacity, you need to hire additional people to be able to launch that next new thing that you have to put something off. Maybe you put it off a quarter, maybe you put it off two quarters. Um, last year, there was something we really wanted to do that we're not going to be able to do until this year. And that pained me but building a virtual conference, an in-person conference, 30 plus workshops, hiring 30, 40 people, all that baby. stuff. You know, you know, a new baby. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. That by the way. Now this year, that's something that we'll be able to move forward. But I will say, I think that the execution, it really does start with being clear on what it is that you want. And then of course, surrounding yourself with non-bullshit artists, because there's a lot of people that like to smile and nod and act like they're part of a project, but they don't really add any tangible value whatsoever. And these humans exist and yet they're allowed they're to exist. They'll exist companies worldwide. Yeah. And, and the reason why I'm like, I'm like getting all, kind of all passionate about this is just because as a business owner and as a leader, your whole role to an extent is like to be able to like move resources from a lower level of output to the higher level of output. You're basically saying here, we're going to create something. We're going to build our firm. So that means we're going to need to have people in these different roles. We want to be able to help and support more clients. That means we got to expand our capacity. Okay. How do we make sure we maintain the same standard of service or how do we elevate our customer service? What do our operations look like? What about our tracking, our metrics? You know, how's our marketing? How are we getting the phone to ring? All these different things become really like your accountability from the top of being able to find the right players to be able to bring into your organization, make sure that they're engaged and then make sure that they're committed and ensure that things actually get done. If you want to completely mess your life up and completely destroy your own business, uh, I mean, there's many ways to do this, but one of which is to be an absentee like owner. If you don't want to be there, if you're not passionate about what you're trying to do, how do you expect your people to be? I don't understand that. I don't know that anyone is ever going to be more passionate and more engaged than you are as the leader. And 
And if you don't care and if you don't want to be there, it's easy to knock these people and say, well, they don't care. Well, start with you. And I've seen some people like, again, I'm not, I'm going to be judgmental. But I see these people that seem like they're on year-long vacations, relaxing, drinking, partying. There's nothing wrong with it to an extent. But then their business is tanking and their people aren't able to really pay their bills. And it's just a mess. And their clients are frustrated and all these different things. And their house is not in order. So I think that your first responsibility when you create this baby of yours, like your business, your law firm, is to make sure that everyone's taken care of. And then when everyone is taken care of, now you can exhale. Now you can take a breath, but until then, if you're going out and, and like drinking and partying and just going nuts and doing all this other stuff while your people are struggling to pay their bills and your clients are frustrated, like shame on you. You're in the wrong game. Michael's unique approach to sales and marketing is what built the strong foundation of Crisp in the early days, but the true differentiator in his strategy is that there's no bullshit. I asked Michael, why does he feel the need to be so honest? Oh man, you opened up a can of worms. So... I'm honest because I used to not be. And what I found was that I used to think that I had to game my way to success, meaning that I'd have to do all sorts of like tricks and like duct taped kind of like half-assed stuff to succeed and win. And as I did that, I saw some success and I constantly felt fraudulent, meaning that everything that I had built had been built on a house of cards. It was just like, there was no solid foundation here because everything that I was doing was like, it was a hustle. And I didn't have any confidence, didn't have any self-esteem. Like I would always question myself, but not in a way of like questioning my judgment. It was just more so, what am I really building here? Is what I'm doing actually helping somebody? Am I providing value into this world or am I just taking? Okay. And when things started to really grow and improve for me, because I went through this whole experience of like transformation and just basically, all right, it's time to do things differently. I actually found that's incredibly empowering. Like if you shed yourself of all of your secrets of anything that you're keeping from anybody, if it just, you just do it right. Now you got nothing to hide. It's amazing. And that took some time, no doubt. But as we were building Crisp, I was like, look, let's do it right. Every decision was like, let's do this the right way. And then also your reputation is going to be everything. So you use somebody the wrong way. Like you create a bad experience. That's going to spread to a hundred people, maybe a thousand people. And look, I don't mind the reputation as being like, oh, I don't like Michael because he's like innovative and he's doing all this stuff and he's not a lawyer and he's working all these, whatever. I don't mind that because it's not coming from our clients. It's coming from the people that sit in our events that are trying to like create similar offerings to us, right? They come to our events and then they say how much they hate us. Well, amazing, right? Right. And I welcome them. I, I don't even think that they're bad people. I think they're good people. There's people just trying to do what they can and trying to grow the same way I was trying to build our company. That being said, I find that if you don't have some sort of ulterior motive, if you can be honest and very, very transparent and upfront, that's where the integrity comes from. So I can go to bed at night and I can close my eyes at night and know that what we've built is real and then also that I am I'm doing this the right way. I can do it knowing that it's not, you know, I'm not some fraud, I'm not some whatever, this kind of person, that everything is built with a solid foundation, that we have good people, we deeply care about our clients, that we care about the work that we're doing, we want to help people, we want to support people, all this stuff. And man, you start sleeping better that way. You start sleeping peacefully because you did it the right way. You did it in a way where there's a value exchange where somebody else gains. We succeed because we help others succeed. Like we don't succeed until they win. The same way, like if you don't provide great service and great customer service, for example, like that's where it's going to spread, right? People have a lot of options. They can work with a lot of different organizations and business. They can work with a lot of different law firms. I mean, especially if you're a contingency-based firm, like people work with anybody. Why would they work with you? So 
first and foremost, you have to have this utmost respect and level of gratitude for the clients who help you keep the lights on and allow you to live the life that you live and allow you to be able to do the things that you do and create value in this world because without them, you don't have anything. So when you say, well, why are you so honest, whatever it is, I'd rather be honest and upfront and transparent and just do it that way and know that at the end of the day, we can look our girls in the eyes and say like, we are doing this the right way. There's no secrets. There's no catacombs. You can go down <laughs> by the basement of the office and you're like, oh man, they, they wear all these skulls, right? There's none of that. And it's not to say that it, it hasn't been difficult. It hasn't been challenging. And look, I'm not perfect. We're not perfect. No. We make mistakes all the time. I make mistakes all the time. But the intent is to do it right. So I think that if you're trying to create something great, then do it in a way where years from now, you built it with such a strong foundation and no one can take that away from you. Transparency, honesty, and integrity will take you a long way in business and in life. Andre Norman is a Harvard University fellow, renowned keynote speaker, and the founder of the Academy of Hope, a violence reduction program that has transformed the cultures of some of the most dangerous prisons in America. He's also the best-selling author of Ambassador of Hope, turning poverty in prison into a purpose-driven life. One of the most memorable moments from our conversation was when Andre elaborated on what his experience behind bars was really like. Maximum security prison is a whole nother world. It's scary. There's no other way to describe it but scared. First time in, you should be scared to death. People get raped. People get beaten. People get stabbed. People get murdered. People get tortured daily across this country. So when I got there, I was scared. They called me down to the unit team. And a nice caseworker sat me down and said, hey, you can go get your GED. You can learn how to drive a forklift. You can do all this other stuff, and you can make your time work for you. So at 1 o'clock, I'm lining up to go to school. And Dominic and the guys pulled up and like, where are you going? We're going to the yard. I'm going to school. I'm about to get my GED, my forklift degree. And they're like, oh, you got the white lady story. What are you talking about? He said, you see them guys over there? They're a member of this white gang. When they find out that you're a loner, they're going to run up on you. They're going to beat you, rob you, and who knows what else. Do you think the caseworker's going to come help? You see them guys over there? They're going to come beat the shit out of you. You know why? Because you're a loner. You see the CO? He's going to have no respect for you. You know why? Because you're a loner. So you got a choice. You can go with the caseworker who's not going to help you, or you can come roll with us, and we're going to hold you down to make sure you're safe. I took your little handbook, flipped it in the trash, grabbed me a knife, and I went out to the yard. I didn't look back. In that moment, it's interesting because knowing now what, what you know, if, if you could go back to that point, was that true? Those are the only two options? Yeah. <laughs> Going back right now, unless I had some Mike Tyson skills, it wouldn't even make a difference because you outnumbered. So going back right now, if you put me back in that same unit at the same time, even with all the skills I have now, I'd have signed up. Because you can't beat the mob, whether it's white, black, or Spanish. One man can't beat 20. I don't care how good you fight. So looking back at that particular situation, day one in the penitentiary, I'm signed up for the gang again. 100%, no blink. Because that's how you're going to survive. You can't go to school if your jaw's wide shut. I'm saying you can't go to school, I'm saying if your head's split open. You're not going to forklift class if you got holes punched in your chest. It's not going to work. So you have to be safe before anything can actually transpire. And safety comes from being involved in that gang. And now through the years when you're in, in prison, just kind of, so you have, you have goals, right? I mean, out of 20,000 people, you, you've got up to what, number two, number three? I got to number three. Number three. Why number three? I mean, I know I asked earlier, but just, you know, why not in the top 10%, top 20%? Like, why, why become the regulator? 
I'm an entrepreneur, and I believe in winning. I've never signed up for anything so I want to be number two. That's not American culture where you sign up and want to be third place. <laughs> the goal is to win. And in that space, wanting to be the ultimate winner, the toughest, most feared guy on the planet is a gang leader who runs the entire prison system, the ultimate shot caller. That's the number one guy. In politics, it's the president. It's not the governor. The number one politician is the president. The number one person in the penitentiary is a shot caller. The shot caller, not a shot caller. And I was like, I want to be the shot caller. And that was the goal. I want to be the top of the list. And I went on that quest, and I made it from number 20,000 to number three. Then I had an opportunity to become number one. Because, again, it's about how much work you put in, how much violence and conduct you can inflict. When I got a chance to be number one, I just had to hurt a couple more people, and I was there. And before I could do it, I had an argument with God. And God said, don't do this life choice. And me and God argued, but he won the argument. The way I explain it to people, it's like when Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz got to the end of the road and she wanted to get the tin hard and all the rest of the stupid stuff, she pulls the curtain back and the wizards are fake. When I got to the end of the road and it was my chance to be the wizard, I pulled the curtain back and then I saw for what it was. It was all fake. It was like make-believe. This champion of champions is not champion of nothing. It's all made up. And I saw for what it was and God helped me realize that um, I picked a bad path and he was giving me another one. And this is a crazy thing about The Wizard of Oz. Nobody in Oz cared that the place was fake. Think about it. Nobody in Oz cared that the whole place was fake. They just were content to live in their little section of Oz and just keep going. So in this moment, like this, this epiphany, like was this just like one day, one night, or something? One afternoon. Like, that's it? Clear. It came clear that I was about to become the king of nowhere. Boom. I'm about to become the king of nowhere. And I didn't want to be the king of nowhere. So I, I backed up. I went to my cell. I said, well, if I can't be a psychopath, what's the point of being in prison? It didn't make sense. Prison always made sense to me. That's why I was 100% all in, because I could rationalize it in my brain that this makes sense. I got this goal of being the number one guy. I'm, that goal is now gone. It's removed. I don't want to be the number one guy, because I see it for what it was. I said, well, first time, six and a half years. I said, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. It doesn't make sense to me anymore. So I said, well, I want to be free. Never said that before. Never even thought it. Then I looked around at the white guys, the black guys, the Spanish guys. I looked at the guys who worked in the kitchen, the guys who went to church, the guys who went to the mosque, the guys who worked in the kitchen, the guys who worked out on the yard, the basketball players, the chess players, the philosophers. They all got free, and they all came back. Free doesn't work. So I said, I don't want to be free because it doesn't work. That's when I said, well, what do I need to do to not come back here? I said, if I'm successful, I won't come here. I said, successful people come from college. I'll go to college. I'll be successful. I won't come back. I had to pick a school. So I picked a school called Harvard University. And I picked Harvard not because it's the biggest school on the planet. It's 20 minutes from my house. I used to ride my skateboard there. So I came out my cell the next day. I told the fellas, yo, get together. Check this out. They said, what's up? I said, I figured it out. I said, I'm going home. I'm going to Harvard. I'm going to be successful. And they looked at me. I said, no, no, no. I'm going home. I'm going to go to Harvard. I'm going to be successful. Now, they wanted to laugh at me, but I had a habit of stabbing people. <laughs> so nobody laughed. Then one of my homies pulled me to the side and said, yo, Dre, what's up with this Harvard stuff? And he told me, you can't go to Harvard. I said, why? He said, you're black. I said, I know that. He said, you're a criminal. I said, I know that. He said, you're a gang member. I said, I know that. He said, you're in the hole for trying to kill eight people. I said, I know that. He said, you was talking about killing seven people yesterday. 
I said, yeah, I know that. He says, you can't read that good. He just kept telling me all the reasons I couldn't go to Harvard. And what I was hearing were my friends from the ninth grade stealing my trumpet. I was like, dude, fall back. Call my mom, call my dad, call my grandmother. And I realized I was on my own. So I stood in the mirror. I said, what's inside of me that's stopping this dream from happening? I'm done blaming other people. Because up until then, I blamed everything or everybody for what happened in my life or didn't happen. I said, what's inside of Andre Norman that's stopping this from happening? And I sent it up. I made a list. I started working on my list. I got my GED first. Then I started going to anger management classes because I had a slight anger management problem. Then I went to the law library and taught myself the law. I became a jailhouse lawyer. I reversed my case on appeal. I started going to self-help groups. I started going to programs. I started writing my own book. I started doing everything I could to better Andre to put myself in a position to be successful. Then I went to the parole board, and the first time I went, they told me no. I walked in, they heard my story, heard my pitch, they said no. And instead of being the angry black man, which is who I used to be, I asked them, I said, why did you say no? They said, you know something, usually we don't tell people, and they told me why they said no. I had an understanding. I went back and I worked on their list. When I came back the next time, I won my parole. Then November 15th, 1999, I walked out of prison with a GD and a goal. Prison Parole Office Youth Center. I started talking to little black kids who looked just like me not long ago, telling them, you're going to jail not because you're black. You're going to jail not because you smoke weed or carry a gun. Somebody let you down, they haven't been there for you, and it hurts. And you act out. At eight and nine, it was cute. At 14 and 15, it's criminal. Let me show you how to heal yourself internally and deal with your trauma, and you can live a great life. Started with black kids, then started with black girls, then it was Spanish kids, then they asked me to go to the white school. I'm like, white kids ain't got no problem. This is their country, they own everything. I went to a white school. They drink at the white school. They do drugs at the white school. They have bullies at the white school. They had fat kids at the white school, that was crazy. All the shows I grew up watching, white kids had it fixed by the end of the half hour. So to walk into a privileged suburban school and these kids had problems, it was too much for me. I was like, wow, they got jacked up lives just in a bigger house. And I realized being 15 was tough no matter where you came from or what you look like. So my philosophy became, if you call me, I'll show up. No more screening or check the box. You call me, I show up. And for 22 years, I've been showing up. And it almost seems like you were, you were a man on a mission of wanting to either pay it forward or with all the speaking you're doing and working with youth and, and so on. Why approach it that way? Like what in you, rather than just focusing on Andre and saying, let me just worry about myself, why, why want to influence others? When I wanted to change my life, Natan Schaefer, who was a Jewish chaplain at the prison, when nobody else would come within 100 feet of me, this man sat with me and he coached me and he educated me he taught me respect. He taught me accountability. He taught me how to be human. Of all the people I met prior to Natan, nobody had taught me how to be human. They taught me how to crush, kill, destroy, not cry, handle the pain. They taught me it's not the one who inflicts the most pain, but who can endure the most pain, who wins. All this madness they taught me. He taught me to be loving. He taught me to be caring. He taught me that I was a vessel of good. And then the people who fed into me, even though I didn't deserve it, there was a CEO named Rob Henderson. He let me into the anger management block. When people didn't want to come near me because of my status, he gave me a shot. He said, man, moving the anger management block, I think it'd be good for you. And he let me in. He took some heat for it, but I went in there and I crushed it. I was in the block for probably like three months. 
and the first time in the history of this program, they went to the warden and said, can we hire this man? He's that good. They said, you can't hire prisoners. <laughs> but Rob Henderson gave me a shot. Natan gave me a shot. Sister Ruth and Sister Kathleen gave me a shot. There's a guy named Pat Dempsey, a Catholic volunteer, used to come in every week and sit with me. And he gave me a shot. There were so many people who gave me a chance when I was technically undeserving. And so when I got free, when I got loose and I got on my path to success, I'm going to tell you the one thing that Tom taught me. Of all the things, success is not a success without a successor. So if you're not helping somebody else become successful, you're not successful, you're just lucky. And I took that to heart. So my goal is to help people be successful. What their success that they want is not relevant to me. Just get there. Stay alive and get there. Laura Wasser is regarded as one of the most elite divorce attorneys in the country, having represented high-profile celebrities like Kim Kardashian, Angelina Jolie, Johnny Depp, Britney Spears, and Ryan Reynolds. Her legal acumen may be considered to be destiny, as her initials are LAW, and she's the daughter of one of the most feared divorce attorneys in America. Yeah, there would be a lot of armistices where one parent would be like, oh, it's so nice to see you. And the other parent would be like, you're at the shitty table at the back because he had represented one or the other of them. But for the most part, you know, we were kids. I didn't know too much about what was going on um, until I got a little bit older and kind of understood. My parents didn't split up until I was in my junior year of high school, and they did it in the most respectful, amicable way. So, And my dad although he may have been the most feared, he really has always been a big proponent of resolution and settlement and doing things, if possible, out of court. And I'm curious, so your your name and your initials, like Laura Allison Wasser, L-A-W, law, uh, was that intentional? Yes, it was intentional, but my parents, they found out that my father passed the bar exam and they celebrated by having sex and making me, they figured out. So that's why they named me Laura Allison Wasser and my initials are law. And I kind of fought it because I thought it was really geeky until I was in my 40s, well into my legal career. And then I embraced it. And now I actually have a couple monograms that say LAW. Now, it seems like becoming a lawyer was was always in the cards, but from what I've read, that wasn't always the case, including, you know, you spent a lot of time in, in New York and when you were putting yourself through school at NYU, doing a lot of things not at all related to the practice of law. No, I did not think I was going to be an attorney. I wasn't, I didn't think I was going to live in Southern California. I did a lot of traveling when I was in my teens and 20s. I lived in Switzerland for a year. I lived in Canada for a while. I lived in Australia for a year and a half. And then I got married during law school to a fellow who lived in Madrid, Spain. So we were living there. So I really had the travel bug. I did a lot of you know, writing about my trips and my adventures. And I probably thought I was gonna go into some kind of a you know, travel journalism field. And then kind of my folks said, here's the deal. We'll continue to support you as long as you're in school. And I thought, oh God, I better find somewhere to go to school. And so I decided to go to law school. I was a rhetoric major at Cal. I graduated from Berkeley and I decided to go to law school and I applied and I got here in here in Los Angeles at Loyola Law School, which is a great institution. And now I'm on their board of trustees. 
Then, still didn't think I would be a divorce lawyer, family law attorney, but because the marriage to the Spanish guy had kind of come to an end after a lengthy 14 months, I had to go back to my dad and say, can I come clerk there for a summer while I wait for my bar results? And he begrudgingly, not being a big fan of nepotism, said that I could clerk for the firm because I needed the money to pay my rent. And I passed the bar and I found that I kind of had a, a knack for it and I really liked it. And he let me stay on and now it's my firm. <laughs> so, so it seems like you've had an interesting relationship with your dad. I mean, including the, the very first divorce case, right, that you tried in the sense. Of, so what I read, it was something along the lines of you coming to your father and saying that you didn't think that this marriage was going to work out. And he said you know, something to the extent of, well, then go ahead and take care of it. That is true. And so we actually, this is back in 94, got an annulment. They were a little easier to get back then, which really means the marriage never took place, which would have been a surprise to everybody that worked at the Bel Air Hotel because my wedding portrait hung there for years even after. Um, yeah, but my parents were always very much in favor of if you need something fixed, fix it yourself. You know, don't pack it if you can't carry it on the plane. And so that was, yes, my first case was my divorce or annulment. And then, I, like I said, I stayed on here and really it's a very, very interesting field of law and I really have a passion for the human nature that's kind of involved in the transition from a marriage relationship to a co-parenting relationship or a separation or two different households or however that family decides to deal with the divorce. When it comes to divorce, so I've read that I think 50% of marriages end in divorce. Now, again, I don't know who conducted this study, but those don't seem like very good odds. <laughs> no, they don't. Keep in mind, and again, I think it did go down a little bit. We're always a little couple years behind on this research. So the last, I believe, accurate kind of figures that have been put out in the U.S. are still pre or during COVID. So it's really hard to say, you know, everybody said COVID, there's going to be such a surge. And we did in the online world see a bit of a spike because it was easier to do from home and you were cooped up with people. But for the most part, it's been a pretty steady 45 to 60%. Now remember, this is of marriages, not of every couple. So, And the stats show that second marriages are more likely to end in divorce than first marriages and third marriages even more so. So it's not every person, it's every marriage. And yeah, they're not good stats. And I always say that, which is if 50% to be averaging of marriages end in divorce, isn't it incumbent upon us to figure out a way to do it better so that it's not such a, t I mean, 50%, that's half of them. Don't we have to figure out a better way of doing it rather than the old fashioned way that we saw in movies like Kramer versus Kramer? And we you know that's so painful. And so breakups are going to be hard no matter what, but legislatively, administratively, you know, financially, there has to be a better way of doing it. So just from your experience, what are you finding is to be the most common reasons why, why people are getting divorced? Lack of communication, lack of growth. Look, it's people would say it's fidelity or finances or whatever, but those are more symptoms than they are causes. It's human nature for us to fall in love. And then we want to kind of lock into whatever is the most you know, secure, protected, you know, having children together, yummy feeling. But obviously after a certain period of time, things aren't as fresh and alive and fun. And you've got, there's always going to be downfalls. And what I have found is that couples that figure out a way to deal with their communication skills and really build tools for good communication when things are good, 
before they move in together, before they get married, as they're discussing a prenuptial agreement, perhaps, those are the couples that can weather the storm so that when things get bad, they can go into their you know toolbox, pull out those things that help them connect and communicate and, and make it work. But people don't. They repress things. They shove them down. They get angry. They go outside the marriage. And that's why marriages don't end up together. People grow apart because they're not working on staying together. And when it comes to like the celebrity divorces, I'm curious, how did you get get into that? Like, because now I guess you're, you're known for it, but was that always the case? No, but back in the day, I was probably one of the younger family law practitioners because usually family law firms are smaller boutique firms. So it's kind of hard to get your foot in the door. So once I got my foot in the door here, then, you know, I went to school here at Beverly Hills High School. I knew a lot of people that had gone into the entertainment industry. So they were either managers or entertainment attorneys or agents. And they had clients that wanted to talk to somebody that maybe looked like them, sounded like them, didn't mind the tattoo or the multiple piercings. And so they would send in Laura Wasser to talk to whether it was a, a young pop star who's all of her agents really wanted her to have a prenuptial agreement or somebody that was going through a custody situation and needed somebody to understand what clubs that they were going to or maybe didn't need to go to while they had kids. And so that was me. And that's how it kind of came to be. And then I think our success and our, I think, really discretion in terms of trying to keep things relatively out of the public eye as people are going through a difficult time has been really some of the secret to our success at this firm. In working with numerous celebrities, how are these celebrity cases different from non-celebrity cases? They're not so different. I mean, I say all the time that divorce is the great equalizer. I mean, and yes, some of the celebrities may have more money than your average person, but most of our clients at the firm are pretty high net worth. I think the biggest change would be the, the media and trying to keep things private and out of the media for the benefit of the family. And then the other thing is that often celebrities have a lot of people with whom they surround themselves who are getting paid either a percentage of what they make or just on payroll to make sure that that celebrity is happy and taken care of. And so that job is to say yes a lot. And that's not my job because all my job is is to interpret and imply the law. I can't change the law. I'm not a legislator. So I don't always say yes. And I end up saying no. And sometimes a celebrity who has now been for many years in the spotlight and surrounded her or himself with people that say yes, here's no. And they may not like that right away. They may even say, I don't think this is a good fit and I don't want to work with you anymore. And then they may actually come back later and say, I appreciate that you weren't trying to blow sunshine up my ass. I want to work with you. And why is that important just in terms of like going about a case and, and not being a yes man? Because you really have to build realistic expectations in family law. You can have the most sophisticated, successful, intelligent head of a studio or investment banker come to you and he or she will say, I don't know anything about divorce law. And you're like, well, of course you don't. Why would you? It's a totally foreign place for these folks. And it's dealing with the most raw and important emotions that they have regarding their significant other, their children. It's scary. So if someone comes to you and says, well, obviously I'm the mom, so I should have the kids full time, right? You have to say no. In California, we have not a written assumption, but a presumption that both parents will have equal time with the children. And I can't tell you that you're the mom and you should have the kids. And just because he's a jerk and he cheated on you, that might make him a bad husband. It doesn't make him a bad parent. And your kids have a right to experience 
their other parent as well. And so I think it's really important because it's a confusing and emotional enough time to not have somebody giving you the straight. I imagine you've dealt with the media a lot. What are some of the the lessons you've learned in dealing with the media? Keep your mouth shut. (laughs) I mean, there's just no, I, I will admit, I am not smart enough or savvy enough to be able to navigate. So just saying nothing is really the best course of action. Quotes can be misconstrued. They get you when you're coming out of the courthouse. And I'm not a very big person. And there's 25 people walking backwards with cameras and microphones. It's actually scary. And so I definitely think that the best thing is to say nothing. Most of our clients will have PR people and they can speak better to that kind of stuff. It's not my you know, we're trying the case. We don't have juries in family law in California, so we're really trying the case for one person, and that's the judge. And he or she is unlikely to be, you know, keeping in touch with TMZ or Dateline or whatever the online things are. So as far as I'm concerned, whatever he or she is reading is the pleadings we put out there, and there's not much more that I have to say about it. I don't like cases that are tried in the court of public opinion. That's not really how I roll. And today, it sounds like you're in a very privileged position in the sense that you don't have to take on any case that you don't want to accept. Like, what are your criteria for when you decide to say yes or say no to a case? There's a financial criteria because it doesn't make sense for us to take them if they really can't afford us. My assistant, Vicki, does a screening of almost any of my prospective clients that calls. And we try to work with people that already have relatively realistic expectations. You know, somebody that comes in, you know, Vicki can usually weed out the crazies. <laughs> and I am lucky. I don't have to take on cases that are going to make me or anybody else in, in my staff miserable. It's Southern California. Almost everybody's been or, or in some kind of mental health care, therapy, whatever. We're not therapists. We're lawyers. You need to go somewhere else for the therapy. We're good handholders. We've got good bedside manner. We try to explain things in simple terms so that people understand them. But in terms of the emotional healing that it comes along with this process, we're not best equipped to be able to provide that. And actually on that note, I want to dig in a little bit more in terms of like the providing of legal support versus emotional support. So it seems like you're pretty clear in the sense of the legal support side, but you're not really the shoulder to cry on. No, and I don't mean to sound harsh about it. I'm just not qualified. And I've had people come back later and say, I really appreciate it. Like you always seem to understand what I was going through and you had compassion for me, but you didn't try to like be my friend or, you know, trade advice over a glass of Chardonnay. And I really do appreciate that. And so I try, you know, that's something you kind of with time build up because you get very, very close with these people. They tell you everything about them. And it's hard not to feel like your friends and be there for them. I mean, we really, some of the younger attorneys at the firm know that we kind of have a policy that you return an email or text or a call within 24 hours. These people need to know somebody's there at the other end. But, you know, being very realistic about what you're saying to them on the other end, I think is is very important. And what about in terms of just setting boundaries? I mean, I, I imagine maybe early on that there's an opportunity to get caught up in kind of the celebrity of, of everything that was going on in Los Angeles between being invited to various parties and things like that. Have you aimed to keep a distance between you and your clients in that industry or have you basically become more integrated with it? You have to remember who you are. You're not their friend. Sometimes you'll get invited to a party and you can either go and leave at the appropriate time. You don't want to be the last one there swinging from, you know, <laughs> chandelier or anything. Um, it's still work. You know, there's a couple clients over the years that outside of the case I've become friendly with. But for the most part, 
we're getting paid a lot of dollars per hour to represent these people and we're not their friends. And to be perfectly honest, it's not that hard to set the boundaries because after the case is over, they usually are very appreciative and respectful, but they don't want to hang out with us either because we remind them of a painful time. All right. Let's switch gears from one of the top divorce attorneys in America to one of the most highly regarded documentary filmmakers living today. See what I did there? So yes, I'm talking about Jason Hare. And one of his most notable projects includes the Michael Jordan and Chicago Bulls documentary series, The Last Dance, which earned them an Emmy for Best Director. While many of us are familiar with or even fans of The Last Dance, during our conversation, Jason shared that the final product was quite different from the original vision. July of 2016, Mike Tolan, the executive producer, came to me and told me about the project. And they already had a deck made for the project. At that point, it was outlined to be eight episodes. One of the final pages of that deck had 10, this was four distributors, because they were still deciding who was going to air this thing, who was going to buy it. And it was to prove to distributors, we have some big names here. So the final page was 10 potential directors. And it was like Peter Berg, Spike Lee, my friend Ezra Edelman, who did the OJ doc. Ezra was by far the least known person on that page. And I'm looking at Mike like, what am I doing here, man? Like, <laughs> no one can even pronounce my name if they see my name on a paper, but they certainly don't know who I am. So I felt like it was like they got no, they got 10 no's, and then they started going through their Rolodex, and they finally got to the H's, and they said, all right, let's call Jason Hare. I think that's where the little brother in me came out. All right, good. I'm gonna show you that I can do it as well or better than, than these people. Who knows if that's true or not? But the competitor in me, the little I turned into the eight-year-old in my backyard playing wiffle ball at that point, wanting to prove to my brothers that I can play with them and their friends. That's what those directors, those 10 guys on a page, that's what they were to me when I saw that. So I went into kind of bunker mode for two weeks and wrote out a 14-page outline of what I thought the eight episodes should be. That made its way to Jordan's people and some execs at the NBA. And then I had a meeting with them. And they said to me, do you think that this can be eight episodes, wall to wall, just the footage from 98, no interviews? And I said, no. And that's when I thought this is not gonna happen because I can't tell them yes, because it won't work. As bad as I want this job, it will not work. We need current interviews from people. And I think this should be about more than the 98 season. We should use the 98 season as a lens to examine that era. So it was very cordial. We've all had meetings where it's like, oh, you shake hands. He's like, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll be in touch. And like, it went fine, but I probably won't hear from them again. And I called Mike and said, like, I need to re-articulate what I wanted to articulate to them because the meeting ended before I thought it would. And he said, all right, they'll be in town again and, and I'll set something up. So he did and... He wasn't there, and there was an assistant who gave me an address for this second meeting I was going to have with them. This is now at the NBA headquarters, and it was one of those, like, soupy hot New York City days. Cloudy, about to thunderstorm, 96, high humidity, and I'm in a suit with no tie because I wanted, like, this is the first time I met these people in person now. They transposed the numbers on the address of the building, so I ended up about 12 blocks down Fifth Avenue from where I should have been and showed up after sprinting in that weather <laughs> and, and I'm a sweater anyway in you know winter clothes basically got to that meeting 15 minutes late and I didn't realize that they were told Jason wants to present something to you all I wanted was to continue the conversation in person 
And I figured as long as they're there, I'll just be in this meeting and say hello. And when I'm called upon, I'll speak. Luckily, I made a bunch of notes to myself on my phone on the way up in the Uber. Because if I didn't do that, I would have had to improvise a speech because I got there and if I moved, I was going to start pouring sweating. <laughs> and they said, take off your jacket. If I took off my jacket, it looked like I had just jumped in the Hudson River. And I said, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm chugging water, trying to cool my body temperature down. And now I have eight sets of eyeballs turned at this big boardroom table saying, okay, why did you call us here? I'm thinking, I didn't call you here. <laughs> you invited me to this meeting. But then we just had a really honest discussion about, I was saying to them that I, I thought that this could be more than just the 98 season. And that was kind of a pivotal moment. But that was, you know, August of 16. They had to, internally, between the NBA and um, the Jordan brand and this production company, they had to decide how they were going to divvy up their pie of the back end of this project. And I wasn't privy to those conversations because I was just going to be a hired gun as a director. So I went off and did Andre the Giant during that. But all the while, on the way over to Paris to shoot in Andre's village, I was reading Michael Jordan books. All the while, I was researching the entire time when I was juggling these other projects, just in the hopes that it would be necessary at some point. So it wasn't until September, I know the date, I'm good with dates for some reason, but this was two days before my birthday, so it was September 27th, 2017 is the first time that I, I was on my way to the gym and I got a call from Michael's manager and she said, how soon can you be up in Midtown? Michael's at this hotel and I have him. It wasn't like he wanted to meet me. I think he, he did not want it. He wanted nothing to do with it. But she said, I have him here, come up, have a drink and leave. I just want him to meet you and get comfortable with you. So quickly like threw something on got in an air-conditioned Uber this time, did not jog up. And that was the first time that I met him. But that was well over a year after I had started researching this thing. And then we didn't roll cameras until June 26, 2018. So it was a very, very long, it was almost two years of research before we first started filming the project. Did you ever, I mean, whether it was from Michael or from anybody else, just in the making of The Last Dance, was there ever anyone that was like, Jason, don't fuck this up, or like try to exude almost like creative control, or did they say, hey, we trust you, do your thing? Oh, there was, uh, not from Michael, but I mean, we had by far the most difficult aspect of the making of that doc was navigating the notes process and the feedback and the perceived ownership of the four entities involved. So you have Netflix, ESPN, the NBA, and the Jordan brand, each of which on their own is a multi-billion dollar brand, and each of which is not used to having to compromise with anybody for something that they feel like they own. The NBA, I'm sure, felt like he's an NBA player. This is all of our footage. We own this. Netflix, I'm sure, thought we paid for this thing. These guys are making this for us. We own this. ESPN, I'm sure, thought... We also paid for this, and we're the first ones on board. We have the NBA contract for X billion dollars. We own this. And then Jordan's people are thinking, subtract Michael from this thing, and there's no dance. Like, nothing's happening. So everybody felt that they were owning it. So that was really difficult was to, to have people agree on something and then get in a phone call immediately after a meeting with someone saying in my ear, yeah, I know you said that, but you know you got to do this, right? And then to have someone call me five minutes later and say, the exact opposite. I know you said that, but you have to do this instead of that. It was very, very difficult to know who my boss was a lot of times. 
And did you did you ever anticipate what it would turn into? Like, I mean, I imagine going into it, you you obviously wanted to put your heart and soul into it, wanted it to be good. But could you did you ever imagine it'd be regarded as probably one of the best sports documentaries ever? The short answer is no, of course not. And and the longer answer is that I'm acutely aware of why it took hold culturally the way that it did, because we were also starved for original entertainment and starved for sports. At that moment, we had literally a captive audience. People were held captive in their homes or, or they agreed to be in, inside their homes. So I'm very proud of the way it was made and I'm very proud of our entire team and the jobs that they did to make it what it was. I also understand that it had an exponentially larger footprint than any of us could have possibly. When I say, oftentimes people say, you can't imagine. We never could have imagined this. You never could have imagined there would be a global pandemic that would keep everybody in every country in the world inside their homes. And we happen to be doing a piece about maybe the greatest sports icon of our lifetime that the entire globe would want to watch. There's very few people that it would have appealed. That's what was so shocking to me or so intriguing. We did a ton of press during the six weeks that that show was out. And I knew if I was doing an interview with someone in LA and it was like the host of a morning show in LA, they were in their living room and so was I. Because we're all American and we're all in our American living rooms. But then you would do something with someone in Australia and Vietnam and Portugal and London and everybody's at home. It was shocking to think like, oh my God, we can't just like turn on cricket because on the other side of the world, they're playing cricket and everything's okay. Nothing was okay. So I can't think of another subject that would have appealed to everyone in the world quite the way that Michael Jordan did during that time. So yeah, there's no way we could have anticipated the reaction it was going to have and the impact it was going to have in working with and getting the opportunity to interview all these like high-performing, really exceptional human beings and just, what has really stood out for you? I mean, I imagine it's been very inspiring. I imagine you, you learn a lot just being in the same room as Barack Obama, Elon Musk, Michael Jordan, you know, Kobe Beyond. Have there been any like certain takeaways that like that stay with you? One of the common denominators with all those people you mentioned is that they don't look back. And in my business, you want them to. So they're reluctant to sit down. You have to strap them into a chair and say, take me back to that moment in 1986 when you scored 63. What were you thinking? They're not used to doing that. When, when we were first researching the Under the Giant doc and I was being vetted by WWE, I had to go through all these henchmen and the last guy you have to meet with is Vince McMahon. So I went to his office and I was saying to him that earlier that day, the historian, librarian of WWE had brought me to this warehouse in Connecticut where all of these pieces of history, of wrestling history are stored. As I said earlier, I'm not a huge wrestling fanatic, but people who are would be in awe of the little and big. They have the ring from the first WrestleMania there, and then they have little like tools and costumes and, and photos upon photos and magazines and memorabilia. There's a method to the madness with them, but it looks to the outsider like it's just in piles on shelves. It looks like Home Depot. And I'm sure they know how to find certain things, but it just looks like this beautiful menagerie of all of these wrestling history all in one room. And I said to him, do you know how much you could monetize that? Do you know that people would come from far and wide to walk through that museum? And he said, I never think about it. I I'm just always thinking about moving forward. So these people, these men and women who are or these icons to us, they're sharks. 
And again, this goes back to like the paranoia and fear of failure thing. I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. It's a gift and a curse. It's a gift, obviously, because it's gotten them to where they are. But it's the curse is that you want these people to have the the pleasure of sitting back and reflecting on what they've done to get where they are and to take pride in that and to express pride in that and then to maybe offer up some wisdom about how they did it, you know? So to sit these people down, it's almost cathartic sometimes is that they enjoy it. Once they know they're strapped in and they have to look back and they can almost become wistful because they don't get a chance to do that that often. Dory Clark is an expert at self-reinvention and has been named as one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world. She's a frequent contributor to publications like Forbes and the Harvard Business Review and is the best-selling author of The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. As a result of her research on some of the highest achieving leaders on the planet, Dory has found that the journey to becoming a recognized expert in any industry falls in four key waves. Oftentimes in my work doing executive coaching, I would have these conversations with my clients. And, you know, sometimes people would say to me, oh, you know, I just, I feel like I'm in a rut. I'm, you know, I'm working so hard. I'm doing all the things I should be doing, but I'm just not getting anywhere. Like I'm not getting any traction. And so of course, you know, if you're an executive coach, you want to try to unpack that with people like, okay, well, what, what are you doing? And you know, what, why isn't the thing that should be getting the result actually getting the result? Like what's going on here? And what I often realized, you know, not, not always, but pretty often, is that what was happening, they were working hard. They were, in fact, doing good things. You know, they were not like watching cat videos and then being mad that they didn't make partner. But the problem was that they were not shifting what they were doing. It was almost like, you know, we get trapped as humans in this idea of like, oh, well, this has been working. It should keep working. But the truth is we have to be sensitive to context and we're not an assembly line worker, right? You can't just keep, you know, doing the thing, doing the thing, doing the thing. You actually have to do different things at different points. And you have to be smart enough and sensitive enough to know when to shift what you're doing. And so oftentimes what was happening was that folks were not shifting and therefore they were feeling stuck because they were kind of stuck. So what I identified, and there's plenty of sort of sub points, but at a really broad level. When we think about the arc of our careers, there's really four key pieces. The first piece, which I think all of us can probably understand and agree on, is um, what I call the learning wave. And that's when you're starting out, maybe you're a new attorney or you're new at a firm or whatever, and you're just figuring out what's going on, right? You're taking it all in, you're figuring out what is this place? How does this place work? Who is everybody? Just kind of getting it down, right? So there is always kind of this orientation process where you have to figure out how this new world works. And then, of course, we, we hopefully shift into uh, the next phase, which is what I call the creating phase, which is, okay, you understand who everybody is and what the deal is. Now you need to start participating. Now you need to start sharing your ideas. You need to start speaking up in meetings. You need to, you know, raise your hand. You need to volunteer. You know, hey, okay, I'll be on this case. Oh, have you thought about, you know, this point? You know, whatever it is. But you're beginning to contribute in some way and creating intellectual property or you're writing writing something, you're adding to something, you're adding value in a certain way so that you're not just a lump on the wall. We also need to make sure that we, at a certain point, are shifting into the connecting mode because, you know, in a firm structure, you know, let's assume for the sake of argument, you want to make partner. 
well, one person doesn't make that decision typically. I mean, I guess it depends on the firm, but in most cases, there are a lot of partners. And if you have a group of, you know, X number of people and 80% of them are like, wait, who is that? Oh, she's been here seven years. I don't even think I've seen her. What? Was that her name? This is not going to go well. You need people to know who you are. You need them to know what your contribution is. And even more than that, you need them to feel like, oh my God, we couldn't lose her. We have to make her partner because we don't want any other firm to get her right? And so you get that because of connecting mode where you're building relationships, you're, you're working on different projects, you're volunteering for things, you're meeting people, you're having conversations so that people not only know you, but think positively of you. So you have those things and you know it's dialed in now, right? You're making a contribution. People know you're making a contribution. And then finally, you're able to get to what I call reaping mode. And reaping mode is actually what a lot of people consider to be the end state, which is yay, you're respected where you are, right? Maybe you've made partner or whatever your particular goal is. You know, you've, you've landed in a great place. Maybe you're a GC somewhere. Who knows? You're making really good money. Everybody's, you know, list, you know, like, oh, well, you know, what does he think? Let's ask him. And that is a place that feels extremely satisfying because you've worked hard for it and that's great. But it is also really important to recognize you can't stay in the reaping phase forever because if you get too fat and too happy and you slack off, um, whether it's slacking off when it comes to your professional development, slacking off in terms of you know continuing to build your network and meet new people or whatever, eventually whatever steam got you to where you are is going to run out because the world changes, the world keeps moving forward and eventually it'll dry up. And so before that happens, you want to enjoy your reaping phase, but you don't want to you know, try to bask in it forever. You need to disrupt yourself and you need to be willing to go back to the learning phase and to become a student again. And maybe that means you know, learning about new emerging things. Oh, well, like what's, you know, what are the legal issues uh, with regard to cryptocurrency or you know, like whatever, whatever the thing is. But it's useful to start asking those questions and to not stagnate and assume that you can coast forever on your successes. We have to keep learning and growing. And I imagine there's going to be a few people listening to this that are thinking, Dory, it just, it just never ends, does it? Right? Because I, I thought once I get to this reaping stage, I finally, after all these years, can, can just not just reward myself and the fruits of my labor, but, but it is really an infinite game. What type of mindset should we have early on, like just even when you're starting to play the long game and just realizing that the most successful people, as you said, I mean, they enjoy their success, but they recognize when it's time to move on and learn something new and create something new and so on. You know, it's true. I mean, especially perhaps coming out of COVID where people might hear that and be like, oh my God, that sounds so exhausting. Because, <laughs> you know, we're all a little burned out at this point, frankly. We've had, we've had a tough two years. But that being said, you probably heard, heard the saying, which I certainly believe in, which is we all have problems, but some problems are better than others, right? If you are a partner that's making a million bucks a year plus, and you have widespread professional respect, if you disrupt yourself, I say in air quotes, and work on learning something new, this is actually extremely low risk compared to what life was like when you were 23 years old, right? You can treat it with lightness and with fun because it is fun because you're learning something new, you're stretching yourself, but 
worst case scenario, right? I mean, I don't think this actually will happen, but like, let's say it just goes terribly and, you know, oh, you know, it's a disaster, whatever that means. I don't even, I don't even know what it means, but you know, oh, you're learning about something and like, nobody wants to work with you on your cryptocurrency law, whatever, whatever. I mean, kind of who cares, right? It's okay because you already have a great reputation. You already have plenty of money. You're able to treat it as the kind of hopefully joyful learning enterprise. These are pretty light problems. Like, am I super stressed out that I had a problem with flooding in my bathroom? Yes, I am. Also, if I were in Ukraine right now, I would be so happy if my biggest problem was that my bathroom flooded, right? We have to keep it all in perspective. It should not feel like an exhausting slog until death. That is not the point. The point is, actually, if we keep learning and keep growing, each time around the block, it should get more fun because we're able to enjoy it with fewer of the intense pressures that perhaps we faced on the, the initial time when we were first learning or first building those connections. And I know you reference this throughout, but I, I think this is even worth restating that this idea that most of us don't know what it actually takes to succeed. So like meaning that many of us are trying to take our businesses or our firms to places we ourselves have never been. And as a result, our expectations can sometimes be way out of line. And, and you mentioned in some cases that one, to even get noticed in your field, it can take two to three years of effort. And to become a, a recognized expert, it could take you know five plus years of consistent effort. I'd like for you to kind of speak to like what it takes to really, really, really like not just build notoriety, but just become kind of a, a notable brand. And, and I'm sure this varies across industries, but, but there's no magic bullets. Yeah, absolutely. One of the challenges, of course, in playing the long game and in, in being a long-term thinker, it's that some things, no matter how much we want to rush them, can't be rushed. And that doesn't mean that you're passive. It doesn't mean you're just like making a Pinterest vision board. Obviously, you're working hard. Obviously, you're doing things. But certain things take a while. You know, if you're at a traditional firm, for instance, even if you're like the best, the best third-year associate ever, they're probably not going to make you partner in your third year. Like, I would be super surprised if that happened. We often have these weird scoping problems. I mean, obviously, it's fairly clear in law firms how things work. And so, you know, you come in with a cohort, and so you, you kind of get the expectations, right? Most people are not going to be so mad because it should have happened in year two or year three because um, you know what the deal is. But... When it comes to other things, when it comes to, you know, if you're running the firm, let's say, and it comes to revenue growth or, you know, other metrics or other milestones, oftentimes we really don't know what we don't know. And it, it kind of shouldn't be that way because we're not trying to like build colonies on the moon, right? People have built law firms before. That is a thing. And so if we took the time to have conversations, to do research, to learn what has been typical in the past with other folks who are in situations like ours, we might have a more realistic scope and be able to, to really understand like, oh, you know, I shouldn't be upset about where I am. Actually, this thing, it just takes two years. So, I mean, it's not to say you couldn't do it faster. I hope you do. Um, but if something normally takes two years, again, you probably won't do it in two months. So just knowing that and being aware of it enables you to have the patience and the fortitude necessary to keep plugging away rather than what happens with a lot of people, frankly, which is in their head, they think it should take two months. 
they give it six months and then they, you know, they quit or they change their strategy radically because they're like, this isn't working. I've given it so much time. Well, actually you totally haven't. You've given it like a quarter of the time that it should take. You just didn't realize what it should take. So proper scoping about our, our timing and our expectations by learning from previous examples is one of the best things that we can do to ensure that we're more likely to succeed at the business elements of the law. And talk about the three keys to becoming a long-term thinker. If you could just quickly mention what those are, uh, just to bring it all together. When it comes to being a long-term thinker, you know, one, one of the key components that I think gets overlooked in some ways is actually courage. Because the truth is, it is really not easy to stand your ground. I mean, this is, again, everybody says long-term thinking is great. Very few people actually do it. And one of the things that happens is a lot of times other people's voices get in our heads. You know, like, well, why are you still doing that? I thought that was supposed to work out a long time ago, but I don't really see any results. And, you know, and you're like, oh my God, you know, are they right? Am I wrong? And you start to second guess yourself. You know, the interesting thing is, I think a lot of people are really afraid that they will be the sucker who's persisting too long at something that is fruitless, and so they give up. But actually, I think what is far more common is that people give up too soon and they don't give things time to germinate. So courage is one of the key elements because you really have to be willing to listen to that still small voice and be willing to ride things out. If you have a conviction that a certain approach, that a certain focus on a set of clients or type of law or what have you will be valuable, that you can bring something uh, to bear and build something, not everybody's gonna see it. And so you need to be the one with the vision and the courage. Resilience is another because, I mean, boy, if you have a long enough goal, let's call it a 10-year goal, a 20-year goal, whatever, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what the world's going to look like. And so almost certainly there are going to be detours. You're going to get knocked down. So you need to be resilient enough to be able to keep moving forward and, and pursuing it. And then the last piece is curiosity because ultimately if we are the opposite, if we are incurious, we often just tend to, you know, okay, I'm going to do this thing. And you keep plowing forward. Well, you know what? The world may have changed. That might not be the right thing to do anymore. But having the curiosity to ask questions, to say, hmm, you know, does this continue to be the right thing? If yes, great. But if not, what other possibilities, what other options are there, I think is a valuable skill because we need to be able to pivot and adapt when it comes to pursuing long-term plans. It's not you know, being a homing missile that locks in on a target and then never deviates, right? The newest and best uh, homing missiles actually can change when the target moves. And we have to be like that as well. I want to give a huge thank you to every one of our podcast guests for joining us on the Game Changing Attorney podcast so far this season. And I want to thank you, yes, you, for listening to this podcast and your commitment to learning and growing as a leader. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at gamechangingattorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on this episode, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit gamechangingattorney.com. Oh, 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 oh